excuse me, there we go. If you have your Bibles or your bulletins or your phone apps, would you take them and find Galatians chapter 2. Galatians chapter 2, this morning we're reading verses 11 through 14. Verses 11 through 14, I'll warn you first, I'm actually going to read verses 15 and 16 as well. They're not printed in the bulletin, so if you're following along in the bulletin, there will be two additional verses. Don't be caught off guard. As you're finding Galatians 2, I'd like to say something to the children who are here. Children, can I have your attention for just a few moments? I'd like you to think about, for a minute, what dinner time is like at your house. What dinner time is like at your house. Not so much what kinds of food you eat but who you eat dinner with at your house. If I had to guess, I'd guess most of you eat dinner with your families on most nights. When I was growing up, dinner time was a pretty big deal. It was at 5.30, on the dot, every night. There were no exceptions. When my dad walked in the door from work, we were ready for dinner. It was usually on the table. And no matter what we were doing, even if we were playing outside with our friends or having a a good time, it didn't matter. It was time to come in. It was dinner time, and, and there were no exceptions. And that was sometimes frustrating to me as a kid that I had to stop playing and come in and eat dinner. But it was very important. You see, who we eat with says something about who we are. The reason we ate dinner as a family every night around our table was was because eating dinner together with your family expresses the fact that you're a family. It expresses the fact that you mean something to one another, that, that you're special to one another, that there are some relationships there. It's not just a random thing of who we decide to eat food with, There's something special about the fact that we eat together as families. It expresses that, that we're a family, and we show our unity by eating together. And sometimes we invite friends over for dinner and would have friends join us around the table. And we knew that that was special because when friends join us around the table, that expresses our friendship with them, and that deepens those relationships that we have because it's essentially welcoming them into our family for that night. It's saying that that they're a part of us, that we love them, we care about them, we want to serve them. And so we have them over and they join us for dinner. There's, There's always something special about eating a meal together. Now, in this passage that we're going to read here in Galatians today, it's actually about eating dinner. And we see that the apostle Peter is having some problems. He is refusing to eat dinner with certain people. You see, at one time, earlier before this passage... Peter would eat dinner with both Jews and Gentiles. Whoever had become a believer, they shared their dinners together. But now, Peter has become afraid. He's afraid of eating dinner with people who he, don't, he doesn't think are good enough to eat dinner with him. He's beginning to set some high standards and say, if some of these Gentiles, if they don't work hard enough and do enough things for God, if they don't obey and keep the law just so, then he's not going to eat dinner with them. Now, that's kind of rude, isn't it? But, you know, Peter is having some high standards here, and Paul, in this passage, what we're going to hear as we read our text in a few minutes, is that Paul comes and Paul rebukes him. Paul tells him he's wrong for doing that. Paul tells Peter that he should not be setting these high standards for who he eats dinner with. Why is it a big deal who Peter decides to eat his dinner with? Well, in one way... Who we eat dinner with is a big deal because Jesus teaches us the gospel is sort of like eating dinner. He talks about Jesus as a king who throws a great banquet and he invites us to come to the banquet. And he says that inviting us, he doesn't require us to earn our ticket to the banquet. 
He doesn't say that we have to obey to a certain limit in order to be invited to eat dinner with Jesus. He says it's simply by his grace that he welcomes us to eat at his table. And so when Peter now sets higher standards than Jesus does, he is not being very much like Christ. He is having different standards for who is good enough for him than Jesus did. And so Paul comes and and he tells Peter this. He says, Peter, you need to remember one thing. Jesus has welcomed you freely to his dinner table. Why are you having these high standards for who you would welcome to your dinner table? Now, Now there's bad news and there's good news here for Peter. And I think there's bad news and there's good news here for us. The bad news, of course, is that, that Peter is being disciplined. He's being corrected. The, the bad news is that he's not living like Christ here. And his sin is being exposed. And that's uncomfortable. But the good news for Peter is that even so, Jesus still invites him to his table. Even though Peter is being disobedient, even though he's not acting in a Christ-like way, he's not being a good Christian, nevertheless, Jesus will invite Peter to his table. Because like we said, you don't have to earn your ticket to have dinner at Jesus' table. He welcomes us by his grace, and that's a picture of his salvation. We don't have to earn our salvation. He welcomes us purely by his grace. And so this is good news for us as well. It's good news as we think about the gospel that we don't earn our ticket, do we? We don't have to obey good enough. We don't have to keep the law well enough for Jesus to invite us. He invites us by his grace. And he has a big enough table for all of us. And as we eat with him, it expresses that we're a family. We're the family of God. And that we come only by his grace. Children, let's pray together as we remember this. Heavenly Father, we we thank you for your invitation, for your welcome. We thank you that although we don't deserve it, we we are not good enough. Nevertheless, in your grace, you invite us, you call us to yourself. You welcome us. You are our friend and you are our Father. Lord, as we read your word, as we talk about it now for the next 30 minutes or so, we pray that you will continue to open our eyes and to give us insight, but most of all to open our hearts. To open our hearts to to receive Christ, to meditate on the free welcome that is ours in Jesus, to delight in him more than in riches. For it's in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen. I want to go ahead and read the passage, and like I said, I'll be reading Galatians 2, 11, all the way through verse 16. This is the word of the Lord. But when Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face, because he stood condemned. For before certain men came from James, he was eating with the Gentiles. But when they came, he drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. As, and the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him, so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. But when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas before them all, If you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? We ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners. Yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law, because by works of the law, no one will be justified. This is one of the key passages in the book of Galatians. If we can just step back for a moment, take a a 
step back to see the big picture that we described about the book of Galatians, there's essentially three main points that Paul makes in this book. There's three themes and three topics that dominate the book. The three themes are first, Paul's apostolic authority, second, the purity of the gospel, and third, holiness. Authority, gospel, and holiness. And what we said is that the book of Galatians is roughly divided into thirds, so that we can roughly say the first two chapters are about Paul's apostolic authority, chapters three and four are about the purity of the gospel, and chapters five and six are about holiness. But what we have in these verses is sort of a transition. This is transitioning here at the end of chapter two between the first section on Paul's apostolic authority that he was called by Jesus Christ, not by man nor through man, but he was made an apostle and given authority to preach the gospel. That is what he has been defending. And he's moving into a position into chapters three and four where he's going to defend what the gospel is. Explain it, defend it, and clarify it so that we know exactly the gospel that he preaches. And in these verses, he's doing a little bit of both. He is continuing to defend his apostolic authority. That's why he's saying in these verses that he is no less of an apostle than the apostle Peter. Although there were those false teachers in the churches in Galatia who were denigrating Paul, they were saying that he was not up to the same standard as the other 12 apostles in Jerusalem because those 12 had walked with Jesus. They had sat under Jesus' teaching during his earthly ministry. They had been there. They had been eyewitnesses to the resurrection. Whereas Paul was a Johnny-come-lately. He had not been with Jesus during his earthly ministry. And so he's defending his apostolic authority, and he says here in this passage that he's on the same standing as the Apostle Peter. He's no less of an apostle than he is. In fact, he says, there was this one time when Peter was actually in the wrong, and it was up to Paul to rebuke him and correct him. Demonstrating that he has authority even to correct other apostles when they go astray and they slip into sin. So he is still defending his apostolic authority in this passage, but he's also beginning to transition now into talking about the gospel. And he's using this story, this anecdote that he tells of this time in Antioch in order to transition and launch his defense of the gospel. And I think we'll see that by the end of the, the sermon. It's, it's hard to see at first how this peculiar story could do that, could launch a discussion of the purity of the gospel, but that's what he does. He's introducing to us the idea that we're justified by faith, and he does it through this story of rebuking Peter in Antioch. So this is a key passage in the book of Galatians. It's important for us. It's a, a transitional passage. I would say it, it also seems, I think, on first reading, as a pretty awkward passage. It's, it seems a little bit foreign to us in some ways, and there's a lot that's hard to understand about it. I mean, this is a story here where two of the most prominent and prestigious apostles in the early church are clashing with one another, and there's one rebuking another one publicly. It says, I did it in front of them all. And so one, one commentator said, this is like going to the church potluck, and the pastor and the associate pastor are getting into it right in front of everybody when they're supposed to be praying over dinner. It, this gets a little bit weird. This had to be kind of uncomfortable for the people who were there. We also have this mention of the circumcision party, which does not sound like a party that anybody wants to be invited to. And then we have this issue. Even the issue that's at stake, that, that here is Peter, he had been eating with the Gentiles, and now he is pulled back from that and, and stopped eating with them, which just seems foreign to us, difficult to understand. And, and so it's a, it's a strange passage. But here's what Peter is doing. We need to understand the problem. And, and I tried to make it plain for the kids. I'll try to make it a little plainer now. You see, Peter 
as an apostle, had begun eating both with Jews and with Gentiles, as well he should have done. We, we have this picture that the Christian community there was very close. Some of them perhaps even lived together, and they certainly shared their meals together, and Peter had been eating with all of them. But certain men came from James, and so there is this delegation. Perhaps this is, are the same people that are mentioned earlier in chapter 2 who are called false brothers. They, they say they're Christians, but, but really they're not. So here they come from James, acting as though they're an official delegate, and, and because Peter is afraid of them, he stops eating with the Gentiles. Now we'll, we'll see a little bit more in a minute about why it is that Jews did not eat with Gentiles. There were a number of reasons. But he's stopping. And, and because of that, that is all he has done, is he's now segregated himself so that now there's, you know, the lunchroom is divided half and half, and Jews eat on one side and, and Gentiles on the other. It says even the others... The other Jews uh, committed hypocrisy with him, and Barnabas indeed was led astray by their hypocrisy. And so that's what they're doing. And now Paul comes, and he sees this state of affairs, and, and that is the impetus for this passage. That is why he rebukes him. He opposes him to his face because he says he stood condemned for doing this. And so we need to understand a little bit more of the background to understand why this is a big deal, to understand why it's a big deal particularly for Peter why Peter should have known better out of all the apostles, why Peter should have known better. And, and some of the reason that this incident seems so foreign to us is, is because, in some ways, the nature of the church in the 21st century here in America is, is much different than the Bible describes it. Because we have some tendencies that we'll get into in a bit, uh, a bit later that are simply different from what the Bible describes. If you have your Bibles open, let's turn over to Acts chapter 10 to read the background to this incident. Acts chapter 10. Acts chapter 10. Let me read starting in verse 9. The next day, as they were on their journey and approaching the city, Peter went up on the housetop about the sixth hour to pray, which is about noon. And he became hungry and wanted something to eat. But while they were preparing it, he fell into a trance. And saw the heavens opened, and something like a great sheet descending, being let down by its four corners upon the earth. In it were all kinds of animals and reptiles and birds of the air. And there came a voice to him, Rise, Peter, kill and eat. But Peter said, By no means, Lord, for I have never eaten anything that is common or unclean. And the voice came to him again a second time, What God has made clean do not call common. This happened three times, and the thing was taken up into heaven. And so there you are. You all, you all say, thank you, Jeff. It's so much clearer now what, what this all means. But here's what is going down with this. You say, Peter, as a long-standing Jew, he had been raised a Jew, Peter obeyed all of the Old Testament law, including the food laws that we find in Leviticus chapter 11 and the extensive cleanliness laws. That, that determined whether a person was clean and therefore could go to the ta tabernacle or the temple and worship, or whether they were unclean and then were not allowed to go to the temple and worship. We said that, it's been several weeks now, but one of those distinctions is that if you're in a state of uncleanness, you cannot worship the Lord in the, in the temple or the tabernacle. And so it's kind of a big deal. You can't go to church. You can't be around other people. You can't eat with your family if you're in a state of uncleanness. And according to all of those food laws in the Old Testament, all of the Gentiles, that is, anyone who was not a Jew, was unclean. Because Gentiles did not obey the law, they were unclean, and so Jews would not have contact with them. 
It was dangerous. They could become unclean themselves and then not be able to go to the tabernacle. And so what's happening in this vision is here's Peter, this this law-observant, food-law-obeying Jew, on the rooftop, and he sees in a vision this sheet come down from heaven. It's filled with animals, all kinds, both clean and unclean. There were reptiles and birds, and he hears a voice saying, kill and eat. And and this is why he objects, says, Lord, there's unclean animals. I, I would never do that. And, you know, even Peter is pretty confused by this. They had to take the Lord repeating himself three times. And then finally, God just tells him outright in verse 15, he says, What God has made clean, do not call common. That's a landmark verse in the Bible. God is saying something here in this verse. He's saying all of the food laws from the Old Testament, all of the clean and unclean laws that, that separated Jews from the rest of the world, everything that kept you separate, these things don't apply anymore. He says, what God has called clean, do not call common. So, now, now even for Peter, this is difficult to hear, but God is saying there are no more food laws. All food now is clean. It's not just neutral, but God has made it all clean. It's all acceptable. It's all allowable. Now, what happens next is what makes this even clearer what's going on. See, food laws, okay, that's still a little confusing, but what happens next makes it clear that that there's something going on here with this vision that's much bigger than just the food laws. Let me keep reading in verse 17. Now, while Peter was inwardly perplexed, no doubt we would have been also, Peter was inwardly perplexed as to what this vision he had seen might mean. Behold, the men who were sent by Cornelius, having made inquiry for Simon's house, stood at the gate and called out to ask whether Simon, who was called Peter, was lodging there. While Peter was pondering the vision, the spirit said to him, Behold, three men are looking for you. Rise and go down and accompany them without hesitation, for I have sent them. Peter went down to the men and said, I am the one you are looking for. What is the reason for your coming? And they said, Cornelius, a centurion, an upright and God-fearing man, which is to say he's a Gentile, who is well spoken of by the whole Jewish nation, was directed by a holy angel to send for you and to come to his house and to hear what you have to say. So he invited them in to be his guests. Now, we hear that this would be a problem for Peter because a Gentile has invited him over to his house. This is verse 23. The next day he rose and went away with them, and some of the brothers from Joppa accompanied him. On the following day they entered Caesarea. Cornelius was expecting them and had called together his relatives and close friends. When Peter entered, Cornelius met him and fell down at his feet and worshipped him. Peter lifted him up, saying, Stand up, I too am a man. And as he talked with him, he went in and found many persons gathered. And he said to them, now this is important, Peter explains something for us here in verse 28. He said to them, you yourselves know how unlawful it is for a Jew to associate with or to visit anyone of another nation. But God has shown me that I should not call any person common or unclean. So when I was sent for, I came without objection. I asked then why you sent for me. Now now Peter says in verse 28 something significant here. He's understanding what the vision means. That when God declares all food clean, he's also declaring the Gentiles clean. That because no food can be called unclean, now also there are no people who can be called unclean. And so Peter now is is a Jew, but he willingly goes into Cornelius' house and he's going to talk with them and teach them. Here's verse 30. I'm going to keep going a little bit. Cornelius said, Four days ago, about this hour, I was praying in my house at the ninth hour. Behold, a man stood before me in bright clothing and said, Cornelius... Your prayer has been heard, and your alms have been remembered before God. 
Send therefore to Joppa and ask for Simon, who's called Peter. He is lodging in the house of Simon, a tanner by the sea. So I sent for you at once, and you have been kind enough to come. Now therefore we are all here in the presence of God to hear what you have been commanded by the Lord. So Peter is a good preacher. He gets this softball opportunity. They ask him to come preach to him, whatever he wants to say. So verse 34, Peter opened his mouth and said, Truly, I understand that God shows no partiality. But in every nation, anyone who fears him and does what is right is acceptable to him. As for the word that he sent to Israel, preaching good news of peace through Jesus Christ, he is Lord of all. You yourselves know what happened through all Judea, beginning from Galilee, after the baptism that John proclaimed. How God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power. He went about doing good and healing all those who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. And we are witnesses of all that he did, both in the country of the Jews and in Jerusalem. They put him to death by hanging him on a tree, but God raised him on the third day and made him to appear, not to all the people, but to us who had been chosen by God as witnesses, who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead. And he commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that he is the one appointed by God to be the judge of the living and the dead. To him all the prophets bear witness, and everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. Now just a couple more verses here. Verse 44. While Peter was saying these things, that is, he was preaching the gospel, the Holy Spirit fell on all who heard the word. And the believers from among the circumcised, that is, the Jews, who had come with Peter were amazed because the gift of the Holy Spirit was poured out even on the Gentiles. Now I'll stop there. That was a long passage. But we see what's happening in these verses. Peter has this vision, which is a landmark vision in terms of the scope of the Bible, where God is repealing the food laws from the Old Testament. And he understands that this means that God is welcoming the Gentiles. He says as much. He understands that God shows no partiality. There are, there are no, uh, there's no partiality. There's no distinctions. And so he preaches the gospel to these Gentiles. And then they have a little reenactment of Pentecost where the Spirit comes and falls on Gentiles. And it says there were these Jews here who were just kind of, you know, chin on the floor amazed because of what they're witnessing. Their whole life they'd grown up to think that, that it was the Jewish nation. It was Jews who were God's chosen people. And the Gentiles were, were far from God. They were outside. And yet here the Holy Spirit of God in fulfillment of the prophecy of Joel is coming on Gentiles. On people who, who did not grow up Jewish. On people who had not kept the law. On people who ate unclean food. And yet now they're receiving the Holy Spirit of God. He, Paul, Peter understands God is removing distinctions. Paul explains in Romans 3, he says, For there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. There's no longer any basis for Jewish superiority, for excluding Gentiles, for not eating with them, simply because they're not uh, keepers of the law. God has done away with those features of the law now, which create distinctions. Now let's, let's read one more passage together. If you can turn over to Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians chapter 2, Paul explains this again in a slightly different way. Ephesians chapter 2, this is one of the majestic chapters of all of the New Testament that emphasizes what Christ has done for us in the gospel. And there's, there's two halves of this chapter. The first half, verses 1 through 10, is essentially almost individualized. It, it's how God makes a person right with him through the gospel. The second half of the chapter, verses 11 through 22, is corporate. It's about the church. It's about the new body that is created. And so, let me read it. Ephesians 2, verse 11. Therefore remember 
that at one time you, Gentiles in the flesh, called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands, remember that you were at that time separated from Christ. See, he's, he's explaining now the Old Testament situation. Remember, at that time you were separated from Christ. You were alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace. He might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. He came and preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near. For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints, members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also, you Gentiles also, are being built together into a holy dwelling place for God by the Spirit. What he says here is this. He's explaining the same situation and saying there were these laws. And these laws that God had given in the Old Testament functioned to keep Jew and Gentile apart. And he says Christ has abolished the law of commandments expressed in ordinances. He says Christ has done away with those. Just like he told Peter in the vision. Christ has done away with the laws that kept us separate. And where there were once two men, he says, I've created one new man through what Christ did at the cross. He's bringing Jew and Gentile together in a way that was unprecedented for them at the time. He says, we as Gentiles, we were far from Christ. We were alienated. We were strangers. We had nothing to do with it. We were exiled and kept apart. But now in Christ, we have been brought near. And how are we brought near? Are we brought near because we now are going to make ourselves into Jews? We're going to keep all of the law and keep the commandments and, and take these things upon ourselves? No. He says we're brought near in Christ through his death on the cross. He says we have been cleansed and we have been made clean, not through obeying all the cleanliness laws. We've been made clean because we've been purified by the blood of Christ. And so he, he gives us the message and he spills out all of the implications for us that, that because we're right with Christ, not because of our actions, not because of what we've done, but only by the blood of Christ, therefore we are all now one body. We are one temple that grows together in the Lord. And now there's no longer any basis for division or fractions or separations, cliques. We're one building. Jesus is the cornerstone and we grow together. So what he says here is that, that the unity of the church, that our, that our oneness is in Christ. And it's a direct result of what Christ has done for us on the cross. So, so now if we go back and we begin to reintroduce divisions, if we separate from others again, what are we doing? But we are nullifying the grace of God in the cross. That's what we're doing. And so, so now we can begin to understand why is Paul coming down on Peter so hard in Galatians 2? I mean, we think, gosh, they're just eating at different tables. Is that so bad? But Paul looks at that and he says, you're introducing divisions into a church 
that Jesus Christ spilled his blood to unify. He went to the cross to make one new man that the entire world might hear the good news, and yet you're trying to introduce these old divisions. That's why it comes down on him. He says, I opposed him because he stood condemned. You know, we think of what Peter has done, and, and we tend to think, okay, this is, you know, Peter's being mean, he's being cliquish, he's being rude, maybe he's even being a little racist here, this is bad. But Paul looks at it, and Paul sees that this is, this is uh, striking the very heart of the gospel. That Jesus went to the cross to, to take people from every language, every nation, every people group, every tribe, every tongue, and bring them into one body to make himself one church with one God and one Father, one Lord, one hope, one baptism, one faith. And because Peter was afraid, he drew back. He drew back and he introduced separations. Here he had been living boldly in the freedom of the gospel, but now he's afraid of the circumcision party. I, I think for us as a church, I think the 21st century church here in America, you know, this is hard for us because I fear, I fear we have a lot in common with Peter. You know, 21st century, these communal ideas that we are one body are less popular. We're, we're all about Ephesians 2, the first half, where it's individual, where it's how we are made right with God. But, but we're less comfortable with the second half of the chapter, where we are now brought into one body, where we're made one church, and we have, we have responsibilities towards one another, and we are to love and to serve one another, we're to use our gifts on behalf of one another, and, and that there's a, a body that we're made a part of, that we're not saved as individuals, because, because here in our culture we know how it is. We, we tend to go for consumer Christianity, that, that we think of ourselves as the individual consumer of religious goods, and we'll, we'll go to wherever we find a church that, that meets our needs the most and, and provides the spiritual product that we are most comfortable taking. But that's not how the church has been set up. Paul says Christ died to, to make this thing, to form this body, to bring us in, to make us one. And it's not up to us to make divisions in the church that Christ has formed. We're so easy to separate. We're so quick to separate these days. And yet Paul fights for the unity of the church because this is what Christ has created. Now we need to understand what Paul has done here and, and, and what Paul is, is saying in rebuking Peter and understand Peter's errors. But I want us to see even more than this. I want us to see how Paul addresses this situation. How Paul addresses it. Uh, because it might seem, and, and we just said, Paul kind of drops the hammer on Peter here. I mean, he comes down, it sounds harsh, it says he opposed him, he stood condemned. I did this in front of them all. I mean, this is, this is kind of important here. But, but I think Paul actually does this with a lot of pastoral wisdom. I think Paul actually approaches this situation and confronts Peter with lots of pastoral wisdom. And there's a lot that we can learn from how he does it. I think there's a lot that we can learn whether pastors or elders or teachers or even parents who confront and discipline children. That's a regular thing. Or whether we, you know have brothers and sisters and friends and coworkers, or whether just a part of the body of Christ, how do we confront one another? Look at how Paul does this. Look at verse 14. But when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel. Now that's Paul's concern. They are out of step with the truth of the gospel. That's where, that's where Paul starts. Notice that he doesn't start with a specific behavior. 
He doesn't rebuke him specifically for separating, for not eating with the Gentiles, for rudeness or racism or whatever it is. He doesn't start with the specific sin. His concern is that their behavior is out of step with the truth of the gospel. That, that here's the gospel, that this is a message of what Jesus Christ has done for us on the cross. It's, and it's a message not of how we can earn our way to God, but how God has come to us in Christ. It's this message of free salvation. But it has massive implications for the way we live. It has massive implications. And, and what Paul sees here is that Peter's sin has at its root a failure to truly believe the gospel and to truly live in step with the gospel. And so he doesn't address the, the specific sin. He addresses the root, and the root is that he's not believing the gospel. The specific sin itself is only a symptom. The real problem lies much deeper. Because, you see, the goal of the Christian life, if we think in, in broad terms, our goal is not simply to modify our behavior so that we stop doing certain things and start doing other things. Some of that comes along the way, but our goal is that, that we will become people who love the Lord our God with all of our heart and all of our soul and all of our mind. Our goal is that we will become people with a singular passion for the glory of God, that we will find our highest delight in the Lord Jesus Christ. And those goals won't be accomplished if we are focusing on each individual sin, but rather we go to the root. Are we living in step with the gospel? Otherwise, Paul could have just been putting a Band-Aid on a headache. You know, I mean, it might look like you've done something to help, but, but you haven't really dealt with the problem. Or, or as one, one pastor said, it's like you see a, a rose bush, and the rose bush, probably like some of my rose bushes, would be wilting and dead and dying. And you say, well, what can I do to fix this? And so you go to the flower store and buy a few dozen long-stemmed roses, and you come back and you staple them all over the dying vines. And, and you know, if you stand back far enough and you squint your eyes hard enough, you can say, okay, that's better but you haven't done anything at all. The problem is in the roots. The problem is in the soil. The problem is at the heart of the bush. Something is wrong. And so, so Paul's method here is he goes for the heart. He asks why Peter is not living in step with the truth of the gospel. And Paul goes to the gospel as he, as he is now correcting Peter. This is his approach. And, and this makes all the difference. He doesn't simply say, Peter what you're doing is wrong, stop it. You know, just, just stop. You know, like the guy at Presbytery yesterday, yesterday mentioned, you know, we don't just put a rubber band on our wrist and flick ourselves every time we sin to make us stop it. We Rather, we go to the heart because there's something deeper. And so what he says is, you've forgotten the gospel. The way you are living is a demonstration that you have forgotten the gospel. And so verse 15, he says, he says to Peter, We ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners, yet we know a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Jesus Christ in order to be justified by faith and not by works of the law, because, in case you didn't catch it the first two times, by works of the law no one will be justified. And so he's saying to Peter, What are you doing here, Peter? Here you are separating from the Gentiles. You are saying to them that unless they become a Jew, unless they start earning their ticket to your table, they can't have fellowship with you. But meanwhile, we have to remember, what did God require of you to have fellowship with him? He invited you freely. It's not by works of the law. It's by his grace, by faith in Jesus Christ, that we are justified. 
And if God has accepted you freely, who are you to insist on a higher standard for having fellowship with others than God has given to you? Peter first needs to have his proud heart humbled through contemplation of the gospel and then live a life in line with the truth of the gospel. I think the reason that we need to hear this lesson from Paul is because we all come to this text as Peter. We all come to a text like this as those whose lives are not in line with the truth of the gospel. We all come broken by sin. We're all just as human as Peter is, just as prone to wander as Peter is. There's, there's parts of our lives for all of us that, that we simply do not walk in line with the gospel. Some of those are areas where we know it, we're aware of it, and, and we just have to, uh, to, to go back to the gospel and to believe. And, and we all have areas that we're not even aware of yet until we come in contact with the Word of God and the Spirit brings conviction and and opens our eyes and shines a light on our sin. We're all Peter in some ways. We need the Word of God to oppose us to our face. To shine His light, to expose our sin, to expose our hypocrisy, which is just another way of saying this, that, that we know the Gospel, we just don't live a life that's in line with the truth of the Gospel. And then we need the word of God to gently lead us back to the truth. Gently lead us back to the good news that we are made acceptable to God, not by how good we are, not by how well we obey. We are just as sinful as foolish Peter. We know the truth and we act all out of accord, but but Jesus died for all of our sins. We are accepted by God, not because of what we do, but because of what Jesus did. This is what we need. We need this every day to humble us, to, to... Uh, realign us to reorient our hearts to the truth of the gospel, to grow in our love for God, and to walk straight lives in line with the truth of the gospel. Let's pray together. Father, we we thank you for Christ. Father, we, we thank you for this good news which we know and we have embraced and we believe And Father, we ask that you will work in our hearts, that you will send your spirit to illumine your word, to do its work of of piercing even to the division of joints and marrow, soul and spirit, that we might continue to bring our lives in line with the truth of the gospel, that those places where we're out of accord might be shown for what they are gently, and we might be gently led back to the truth of Christ, that the church of God may be pure, that we may be one, that we might be unified, and that we might give praise to our Savior. Be a good and bold witness for him. For it's in his name we pray.